Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's official. Just two weeks until the games are scheduled to start, the Tokyo Olympics will be held without spectators as they move into a state of emergency again. How are they going to move forward? Well, we'll talk about it. Political engagement by First Nations remains crucial to advancing Indigenous issues. Should engagement remain within the existing political parties, or would Indigenous leaders achieve more by founding their own party? And the Alberta government intends to join the TC Energy Group in challenging U.S. President Joe Biden's cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline. President of Canadians for Affordable Energy Dan McTeague will join us to discuss it. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're about two weeks away from the uh, beginning of the uh, Olympics in Tokyo. And, uh, well, it's not looking good right now. Uh, as the IOC president, uh, Thomas Bach, actually arrives in Tokyo, he's greeted by state of emergency plans amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Charles de Ledesma has the details. IOC president Thomas Bach touched down to find Japan's prime minister, Yoshihide Suga, set to declare a state of emergency, which is likely to result in a ban on fans at the Tokyo Olympics as coronavirus infections spread across the capital. Bach's arrival comes just two weeks before the postponed Tokyo Olympics are set to open. The IOC and local organisers are attempting to hold the Games during a pandemic, despite opposition from the Japanese public and medical community. I'm Charles de Ledesma. So what's going to happen going forward? Obviously, I think they've passed the point of no return at this stage. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Donnelly, professor with the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto. Professor, uh, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Have they have they gone too far? I mean, I, well, there was probably never any serious consideration about cancelling these or postponing them again, was there? Uh, probably not. I think there were too many financial interests. Uh, uh, and, and also... Uh, a lot of pride or face in, in Japan about uh, about uh, doing all this preparation and then not hosting the games. So uh, uh, yeah, I think I think it was going to go ahead. It's uh, it, it, unfortunately the situation now is worse than when it was cancelled in uh, in 2020. So uh, so that, that makes it even more difficult. The, the oddity here, of course, as you mentioned, is, is all about money here. Uh, there's a great deal of money on the line here. And even if there is nobody in the, in the stadium, and there may not be the way things are going right now, TV contracts are still in place, and I guess that's a big deal. That is a big deal. I think uh, it's uh, likely to generate 3 to $4 billion for the International Olympic Committee. Uh, they distribute uh, a lot of that money to... Uh, to international sport federations and national Olympic committees, so uh, even Canada, uh, Canadian sport gets um, a portion of that money, and uh, and so it will if if they don't have that money, uh, it doesn't get distributed, and uh, and sport uh, uh, certainly at the top level uh, in every country in the world begins to suffer a little from it. When we've got a state of emergency, I tried to look into this this morning, and I'm not getting a whole lot of uh, success trying to find out. In in this area here in Canada, of course, and here in Ontario, uh, we have medical officers of health in various jurisdictions who can basically override just about anything and say, no, it's not safe, you can't do that. Right. Nobody would have the uh, the courage, I guess, to, to stand up and say that, notwithstanding the fact that this is, what, the third or fourth state of emergency they've been in? Uh, this is going to be the fourth. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, they have declared states of emergency um, 
at a much lower level of infection than Canada has or, or each of the provinces who, who do that declaration in Canada. So uh, they haven't had nearly as many uh, cases in, uh, in Japan as they've had in, in Ontario, for example. But because they're an island, uh, they have tried to, uh, to, to manage their borders in the way that Australia and New Zealand have, have but not, not as, uh, as well as uh, Australia and New Zealand. And, uh, and, uh, and, and they're concerned about their population. They have an aging sure. population like Canada does. And, uh, and uh, you know, they have committed now to a situation where uh, probably um, more than 100,000 people from diff- every country in the world are going to be uh, arriving within the next couple of weeks. We should mention, if they do go through with this, and we're expecting an announcement later today, an official announcement, although the story that we got out of Tokyo about half an hour ago, and I'm sure you saw this too, Professor, is that they're not going to allow fans in. Uh, but we will wait for the official word on that a little bit later on, which should be imminent. But that's not as if any, nobody's going to be in the arena. My understanding is that trainers and, and other support staff and everybody who's going over there uh, for the games will, will be in the stands someplace, probably masked, but they will be there. Yeah, uh, I, I assume that will be the case. Um, I mean, the you know the the protocol is probably going to change two or three times between now mm-hmm. and uh, and the opening day, and probably will change uh, even during the game. So uh, so I don't think we can make any definitive statements now. But uh, I, you know, it, I think it's not likely that f- that fans will be there. That this will be uh, a made-for-television event. We're going to speculate for a second, if we could, Professor. What does this do to the psyche of the athletes that are performing? Some of them were very nervous about going over there in the first place. And and they're concerned um, both for themselves and for their their own health and for the health of the of the population of the country they're going to. They they recognize that uh, they could be the cause of a major spread in, of infection in uh, in uh, in Japan so uh, so i think that was a, a large part of their concern uh, it was canadian athletes who drove uh, the original cancellation uh, a year ago last uh, last march and um, and you know i think a lot of athletes are very thoughtful people who uh, who are concerned about uh, what they're going into now that was one of the warnings from the World Health Organization, wasn't it, Professor, about this turning into a super spreader. Yeah. Exactly. The incubation yeah, period be damned. I mean, they're all going to go back to their countries in the first, you know, first week of August. And, and, and if they're positive or if they're a carrier, who knows what's going to happen? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, every, uh, I mean, there's over 200 countries going to be represented there. All of those countries have uh, different standards of, uh, of, uh, testing and quarantine and uh, and different means of uh, different possibilities of uh, of enforcing uh, the regulations that they do have so it's uh, <laughs> it, it, it there's a lot of risk involved with this uh, i've got my fingers crossed that it won't happen but uh, it, it really could be one of those super spreader events your, to your point about the different you know, sets of parameters in different places, I was kind of surprised when I read the story earlier this morning about uh, Mr. Vak, who's uh, just arrived in Tokyo, uh, and he said he's going to begin his three-day quarantine. I thought, wait, that's, that's pretty liberal, three days. It's usually 10 to 14 days in most other places I've read. Yeah, I assume he's fully vaccinated, and Canada is, uh, is just shifting that yeah. into, into that with returning Canadians. You test on arrival, and when 
you get the results of that test as uh, uh, you're not you, you don't have to quarantine any longer. So it's probably that kind of situation in Japan that uh, he will be waiting for the uh, for the results of a uh, of a test on arrival. Just getting an email from uh, one of our listeners here at bkelly900chml.com from uh, Atlanta asking, are all the athletes required to be vaccinated before they participate? I, I assume so. Isn't that the case? No, they're not. Oh, really? No, they, ha- they haven't mandated that. Um, we, we think the majority uh, will have been uh, fully vaccinated. Um, uh, there will be some vaccine hesitancy among, mm-hmm. <laughs> among some athletes. Yeah. So, uh, so that's why they haven't... Uh, they haven't enforced it, but they have. Uh, uh, the, the Chinese government has made uh, uh, a vac- the, the Chinese vaccine available widely, uh, as have some of the uh, other uh, vaccine makers. And uh, uh, so, athletes who want to be vaccine- vaccinated have uh, have had that opportunity. Is my understanding? We had a discussion with Alana Sharp who's the golfer, of course, who was named to the Olympic team just a couple of days ago, and uh, asked her about that. Now, this is her second Olympic. She was at Rio. And mm-hmm. uh, I said, so is there any trepidation? And she said, you know, you know what's going on. You know the realities of it. But uh, to paraphrase what she said, she says, we go in there with our eyes wide open. If you choose to go, there's a risk. And if you choose not to go, well, that's something that you have to respect. So I, I, I don't know with this going on and with the now this next state of emergency that's being declared right now is is – do you think that's going to give some of the athletes uh, some second thoughts as to whether or not they should actually participate? Um, it, it's possible. Uh, I think they may have uh, passed the uh, passed the no go point in their yeah. in their own minds at this point. They're into into preparation. Uh, um, they are being assured by their uh, their national Olympic committees that uh, everything will be done to. To protect them, it will be not a fun Olympics for the athletes. They will be uh, 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 shepherded everywhere. They won't have any uh, free relaxation time. Uh, e- you know, uh, even after their events are completed, they're expected to leave the country. Uh, so it really will be. Uh, uh, there won't be any of the atmosphere that usually accompanies uh, an Olympics. No, she did mention that, that uh, I guess uh, he, she and the rest of the Canadian golf team, uh, I think they, they had scheduled to spend the first two days in the village, uh, but the golf tournament's actually, I think it's about an hour outside of Tokyo, so there's a hotel there, and, and they'll be isolated there. They're not going to be allowed to travel or anything else, and I would imagine that's going to be the protocol for just about all the athletes. I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the more difficult protocols are for, uh, and I know uh, the J- Japanese government has limited numbers of, of this, but, uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of uh, sponsors uh, of the Olympics who expect to be there and uh, the uh, and all of the, uh, uh, you know, the a- executives and administrators from national and international sport organizations across the world who, uh, who see the Olympics as uh, a junket, a major junket every, uh, every four years. And, uh, and, and for corporations, a major corporate uh, event. But I believe all of the... Uh, uh, the corporate hospitality has been has been shut down, and uh, so it will be it will be a, an Olympics like no other. 
What about the pageantry? One of the highlights of, of the games in the past has always been the opening ceremonies uh, and the pageantry that goes on with that, usually some superstar acts, and we've seen that in the past. And then the, on the other end of the spectrum, of course, is the closing ceremony. But those are shows unto themselves uh, that are supposed to ga- garner uh, a great deal of international television audience. Are, are, are they still going to be on, or are they going to be in a reduced capacity? I think they've been modifying that uh, uh I mean, since the original plans, the original plans were probably spectacular. They've been um, doing modifications, as I understand it. Uh, they're always kept quite secret, but I I suspect there will be a lot of virtual uh, events, probably uh, 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 a major light show, uh, not, many, uh, not many live people uh, involved in it. I just saw the statistics that you referenced this at the beginning of our conversation about uh, about income, and I, I don't want to suggest this is solely about money, but that's certainly, as you mentioned, a determining factor. Uh, that the IOC gets about seventy-five percent of its income from selling broadcast rights. Uh, we're talking about three to four billion dollars, as you mentioned. Uh, so there's a lot of money on the line here, and there's absolutely no way they could just walk away from that money, is there? Well, they can't walk away for it, but they're from it, but they're generally not at risk. <laughs> the individuals who are who are doing that, um, and this is why they're driving uh, uh, the, uh, the the holding of this Olympics in a situation that is worse than it was last year when uh, when they cancelled it. When the competitions actually start, the fact that a number of athletes in, in from various countries have, have opted out and said, we, we just don't want to risk this, uh, does, does that put an asterisk beside these Olympics, it's sort of like what happened in, in Los Angeles when the Russians didn't show up, or I guess the previous Olympics before that when uh, when the Americans didn't go to Russia? They, yeah, you won your gold medal, but if so-and-so was there, would it have been the same? Does that discussion happen? Yeah, I'm, I don't think anybody's ever uh, put a, an asterisk in the record books, so it's a kind of a, it's an in-your-own-mind, in uh, in other people's minds kind of asterisk. But uh, if uh, if the possibilities of people preparing have been different from different countries, and that is certainly the case, then this makes this uh, an Olympics where the likelihood of seeing uh, unexpected results uh, uh, does occur. Um, I mean, if the rich countries win all the medals again, <laughs> that will probably be uh, uh, the situation as as usual. But uh, and and it's likely to happen. But there could be some unexpected results. Which is why I think the television ratings are actually going to be quite good, notwithstanding this is kind of a stripped-down event now because of what's going on in this state of emergency. Uh, there's a certain curiosity to this, to see just how this is going to turn out. And I, I would think a lot of people are going to tune in just to see that, and the competitions themselves once, once they tune in. Yeah, I think that, I think that will be the case, and that is, that is usually the case. And this year there's, a, you know, there's an even uh, more kind of uh, unique effect uh, interest in it plus all of the athletes families and friends uh, many of whom would have uh, would have been there mm-hmm. um, are going to be watching every minute well it's going to be fascinating to watch it and uh, about two weeks from now is when all things get underway uh, professor always a pleasure to get your perspective thank you for spending some time with us today thanks bill take care that's uh, professor peter donnelly from the faculty of kinesiology and physical education at the university of toronto 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Truth and reconciliation. You've heard those words a lot because of uh, the discovery in Kamloops and Saskatchewan over the last little while and the revelation that's probably many, many more uh, unmarked graves in uh, residential school facilities uh, and the land around them uh, right around the country. But I think what a lot of people are looking for, and certainly people in the indigenous community, is is action instead of the the words and the thoughts and prayers. Uh, earlier this week in the program, we talked with Dr. Lee Mizden Gobin, who is a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science at Brock University, uh, and he says, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of talk here, but we haven't seen a whole lot of action. Justin Trudeau came into office talking a really, really big game about reconciliation. He has consistently. Um, made it a core feature, a really, really central part of his speeches and his kind of image as a politician. But you're right, we continue to see these long-term boil water advisories. We continue to see uh, rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls far too high into genocidal territory. Um, we continue to see him not fund supports for, um, for those seeking their, their relatives. Um, in these unmarked graves. And quite frankly, we continue to see him and his government take Indigenous children to court in order to minimize the amount of money they have to pay out and the amount of money that they have to put into um, the Indigenous child and welfare system today. And so I, I think it is an individual level issue where we need to start holding our leaders to account. But at some point, the leaders actually have to do what they say they're going to do and don't get to um, ride on this rhetoric of reconciliation if they're not actually willing to do the work and actually are continuing to contribute to the harm. Thank you, Professor. That's the question I think everybody's asking these days, is is it going to be different this time? Uh, there's a, a very thought-provoking uh, article that appeared this week uh, that addresses that. Uh, joining us to talk about that is the author, Tasha Kirden, is the CEO of Ellipsum Communications and Public Policy Analyst, and thankfully still a contributing editor for the National Post. Uh, Tasha, so much good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. I need to just correct one thing, because I actually I joined Navigator um, in oh, okay. last year, so I'm uh, no longer a CEO, but a very happy principal of that firm. Just there we go. <laughs> Good to know. And still a contributing editor. I'm glad you're still writing love some that. stuff, yeah, too. I love, love to write for the post. I, I read this with great interest, and, and you've outlined a number of the things that we were talking about uh, with our guests earlier this week about lots of talk and not a whole lot of action. Mm -hmm. uh, you put forth here an alternative that says, look, it, maybe it's about time that the indigenous community started to get politically active, and you're talking about even the possibility of a political party. And that's That's not a new idea, is it? No, it's an idea that has been floated before. In fact, there have been a couple of parties that um, have existed, and uh, I mentioned two of them in the piece itself. They've existed in the last um, five years. Actually, the last one disbanded five years ago to sort of make way for Idle No More. That was the reason that it, it ceased. Mm -hmm. But um, we've seen previously also, you know, indigenous politicians. We've seen, I mean, just very recently, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, come from, you know, a great position of strength to be basically torn down by her own leader, her own prime minister. And so one of the, the ideas, that the reasons I floated this idea is because it seems that within existing party structures, it's been more difficult, very difficult sometimes, for Indigenous politicians to assert the issues that they believe in or assert what they believe in. So why not try this other route in a more forceful way than it has been done before? 
By the way, I want to pick up on that in a second, but uh, I wanted to get your comment also about the news that we just heard uh, about 20 minutes ago that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is not going to run in the next federal election, which kind of surprised a lot of people. That surprises me, too, because I, I just wasn't listening 20 minutes ago to, uh, or focusing 20 minutes ago on that issue, and that's disappointing because I think she is fantastic. I mean, there was some uh, discussion of whether she was going to run for the leadership of the Assembly of First Nations. We, we know she chose not to do that, obviously. Um, but I do wonder what her next move would be, because she's the exact kind of person that I would see as a potential leader for a party like this. She has an incredibly high profile. She was even elected as an independent, and she has been an advocate her whole life. So a person like that, I believe, would be able to bring a party to the fore in a way that the previous incarnations of Indigenous parties perhaps were not. I had the same thought as soon as I heard the story. I thought, okay, what's the next move? She's not going to fade away, is she? Absolutely not. No, and nor should nor, she. Nor um, should she, yeah. No, I mean, the, the issue of Indigenous reconciliation has been, uh, you know, it's been, it has not received the, the due, I think, that it has, because uh, a lot has been done through the courts. There's been a sense of inaction, uh, lots of promises, like you said, but inaction, because the government has not seen it as a priority. Though I want people to cast their minds back to just before the pandemic, um, our country was in the grips of the Wet'suwet'en Nation's um, issue with the pipeline, uh, a blockade of our rail lines, a serious economic issue that was facing all Canadians, not just Indigenous peoples who were concerned about their land and what this pipeline would mean. So I think that, you know, we the, the pandemic has changed the tone in a sense, but we're coming out of it now, and I think that even now we're risking seeing more action like this unless the issue rises to a more political level. Because historically and around the world, even in our own country, in Quebec, for example, um, the move to have a Quebec nation became very politicized. And in the end, it achieved not the original objective, a separate Quebec, but a lot of uh, power and recognition of the French fact and the ability of French Quebecers to work and live in their own language. Those kinds of things were achieved politically without violence. And that is, I think, what we'd like to see for Indigenous peoples as well. Well, as you pointed out in the article, and I, and I think there's a, a, a strong sentiment here that this is maybe the, the way to go, in our parliamentary system, where minority governments are, are not abnormal, uh, any political party can have influence if they are, are the votes that that party in power needs to get things done, and that's how you get your agenda move forward. You don't necessarily have to be governing, you have to have that wedge issue, and, and you have to have that balance of power. Yeah, look at the Greens in B.C. on a provincial level. I mean, they held uh, John Horgan's feet to the fire consistently because they had the balance of power in that government in the same type of system, and that is exactly what can happen on the federal level as well. Um, you could see a situation where a minority parliament or a minority government, or if we ever change to a different system than first past the post, a coalition situation or other, where a party like this would have significant say. So, again, it's I think it's an option that might be tried, um, considering that other options so far have not moved the needle on this. And like you said, I don't know if his prime minister is going to actually do what he says he would do, even if he's reelected. So, well, I've heard, and I'm I'm frustrated by this, and I'm sure that people in the indigenous communities are. So many people that said, "Look, at we, we, we're." just heart sick about what we found this is terrible and some of the stories we've heard about what happened in the schools and and, and the boiled water advisories but what can we do there's a simple answer to that isn't there tasha the, the truth and reconciliation committee came up with a series of recommendations that have basically been sitting in somebody's desk in ottawa for the last six years yeah they, they have and it's ironic that just this week in fact i think it was yesterday the prime minister um went to the coss first nation and finally enshrined the first one of those recommendations yeah into law, giving them the actual authority over their social uh, welfare system and their own children. 
So, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the report also on uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls made a series, a very long series of recommendations as well. Um, and there's a lot on the table. Um, I think that indigenous peoples are the ones who have to really define the scope of reconciliation. First and foremost, however, it is fundamentally what do they want to see. I think that is where it should start. Um, but we do have a lot already, like you said. So politicians have a lot to work with. They should start working with it. And, and the message here, I guess, is if you want to move your agenda forward, trying to work within the existing political structure can be close to impossible sometimes because there's a lot of talk and not a whole lot of action. You, you need to be active within the system, and, and maybe the solution that you're proposing here, or suggesting anyway, might be part of that. I, when I read the piece the other day, I thought, first, Jody wilson was the first person I thought of, and, <laughs> and I, I don't know what her plans are going forward here, but you need that kind of leadership and that kind of voice. Yeah, well, can you imagine a debate where she was at the table with Justin Trudeau and the other leaders as an equal? I think that would be a fascinating situation. Um, you know, the Green Party's been included not in every single debate, but in many of them, and Elizabeth May brought her issues to the table, and she would have not have been able to do that in that public way without having a party to lead. So that's where the, that's where the, the balance tips to me, is that it's the, the public recognition as well that might favor this option, even if it is not a party that lasts forever, even if it's not a party that forms government, but it's a party that advances issues at a critical time and could play a significant role in a minority parliament. But you talk about some of the shortcomings in the piece that are... A lot of stumbling blocks, if not barriers. Yeah. One of them, the fact that it's it's a diverse population and spread out all over the country. There's, there are some concentrations, but the key to that, as we found out with other political groups, is to make sure that they are politically motivated and active, and, and they get out and vote, and they're active in the process. And uh, that's easier said than done with a lot of those groups, especially in, in the indigenous population when you look at past elections. Yeah, well, ironically, I actually wrote about this issue uh, six years ago and did actually look exactly at that at voter turnout of Indigenous communities. And the on-reserve voting rate has been a third lower than the national rate. Um, mm -hmm. About two-thirds of us vote. Nationally, uh, only 40% of eligible voters uh, in 2004 did the same. In 2011, it was 45% who voted on uh, Indigenous reserves. So... Yes, you do see a disparity, but I think there'd be an increased motivation if there was a party like this. And as well, one of the other issues, as you rightly say, is the dispersal. Um, you know, Indigenous Canadians make up about 5% of the population, but it's, it's dispersed in a system that does not favor, you know, there's no proportional representation, it favors riding-based success. So I think, though, it depends on the candidate, because look at the Green Party. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Elizabeth May won numerous elections. Jenica Atwin, who's no longer part of the Green Party, won her election. If you have a candidate who is locally very strong um, and is, is, has a high profile, I think that you can elect a number of MPs um, and enough to maybe even get party, you know, party status officially and the benefits that come with that, too. Well, the reality of politics these days is two things I think motivate people. One is, is an issue that they can actually grasp onto that relates to, to what's going on in their lives. But you're right. The other one is leadership. And, and I, I hate to use the word charisma because you want something a little more than that. You don't want somebody who's just going to be superficial, but somebody who people are attracted to and they can say, yeah, I want to rally behind him or her. And, and there are people within the indigenous community that fit that bill. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the keys to, to if you're going to form a party, is finding those so-called star candidates, for lack of a better word. And it, you're right, charisma should not be the only thing. But it is a huge part of politics, as we know with our current prime minister. Um, name recognition is a big issue, too. 
and presence on social media. That's another game changer we've seen in the last decade that's changed politics irrefutably and made it much easier. I mean, you look at people who are extremely charismatic who've come from you know, apolitical backgrounds in the United States. I think of AOC, for example. I mean, yes, she's part of a Democratic Party, but she's uh, got her own opinions very strongly, and she's got a huge social following, and that's why she gets a lot of attention as well. So all those things put together with the right individuals, I think you could really uh, make these issues come even more to the fore than they are now and perhaps more successfully. Tasha, you've written about this, as you mentioned, extensively. You've talked to people in the Indigenous community. Is there a segment of that population that's ready to look at this as an alternative, that just say, look, we've tried to work within this system, we've tried to work with all the political parties at one time or another, and it's the same result? Well, I've, you know, I've talked to, yes, I've talked to some people in the Indigenous community. I can't say I've canvassed broadly. That would, that would be misrepresenting the situation. Um, just last night, ironically, I was uh, in a conversation with Bob Watts, um, who's the former uh, interim director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in a speaking group that uh, launched in Vancouver last night. We were virtual, of course. We discussed this issue. We didn't specifically discuss the issue of the party, but, yes, the issue of politics definitely came up and political involvement and how important that is. It's not the only solution, though, and that's one thing also we can't just, you know, throw out a solution and say, do this, and this is what you should do. No, Indigenous people have to feel that that's the right path for them, too. But I think there is a sense within the uh, Indigenous community and nations in Canada that, yes, uh, you have to try multiple approaches, and the courts are one slow route. I don't think violence, um, blockades, is anything people really want to see. I think that's a result of feeling blocked in and desperate and not having other alternatives, but... I think there are alternatives, and I think politics definitely is one of those pathways if it's done in a very deliberate and focused way. Well, and yeah, that's a message I think we need to reiterate in this situation. Uh, blockades or burning down churches may draw attention, but it does not draw support. Quite yeah. the opposite, in fact. And I think I think most clear-thinking people understand that. Yeah, I, I think so. I, it just again, um, it's been it's been so far a, a lot more of what we've seen, and I think partly the treatment of politicians like Jody Wilson-Raybould by their own parties hasn't helped that. So, and Mumulak Kwakak, too, who said, you know, very recently, she's not running again either. She's an Inuit representative from mm-hmm. Nunavut, and she said, I just didn't feel like I belonged in the House of Commons. Well, we need to make that sure that doesn't happen. And an Indigenous party maybe would make more of a space for MPs like that to say, hey, I do belong, and feel that they could make a difference and run for something like that. Uh, great to have you back on the program. Uh, it's been such a long time, Tasha. Uh, this is a very thought-provoking piece. Uh, I think it's still on the webpage for the National Post if uh, anybody wants to jump in there and, and read the whole thing because uh, you'll come away with a different perspective on this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we can talk again down the road. Thanks again for today. That would be great, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. Tasha Kiridan, and uh, always a great columnist and has been for many, many years here in uh, Canadian journalism. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, battle over the Keystone XL pipeline is not over, even though President Biden did nix uh, the whole thing a little while ago. And, uh, well, a lot of people are not going quietly into that good night, and province of Alberta may actually be joining the fray. Joining us to talk about this is Dan McTeague. Dan is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, of course, a former Liberal MP. Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me again, Bill. I, I'm going to call a quick audible to the line of scrimmage here. I want to talk about this in great detail, but uh, I saw you on, I think it was Global National the other day, talking about gasoline prices, because uh, a lot of people are complaining about it and the way things are going right now. And the, I think the gist of what you were saying was uh, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Well, yes, and I think the markets are a little uh, a little behaving in a very uh, un, unfashionable way, and that's simply because I think there's this sense that 
what we can do with fossil fuels, um, that we can shut down pipelines. We'll talk about that in a moment. That yeah. we can somehow divest from fossil fuels. Except that when ordinary thinking people take the time to look around themselves and consider everything around them that is made with fossil fuels or derived by fossil fuels, um, including our pandemic response, almost all of it, uh, you'd start to wonder what you know whether this cult or religion-like fervor with climate change and with renewables is actually making people feel that uh, somehow green energy can displace. And so that's the main reason why we're seeing prices moving up. Uh, you are uh, you know dollar well, it's dropped uh, to dollar thirty-four point nine high end here in Hamilton, um, but uh, really much of this is uh, and and the reason it's getting a lot of attention uh, is now being is because, of course, there isn't enough money going towards oil. Oil is not being produced. Demand is through the roof. And our federal governments and other provincial governments seem to be only too content to find trendy, cute ways to raise taxes on gasoline. So two years ago, three years ago, when we lost, last visited these kind of prices, we didn't have a 10-cent carbon tax, which will soon be 45 cents, or a clean fuel standard, uh, or a, a move to try to somehow block oil uh, so that only a few countries in the world, the Russias, the Saudi Arabias, the United Arab Emirates, uh, are the, uh, the, the, the last producers in the world of a commodity, by the way, Bill, which is going to increase. We're not going to see a decrease in the use of oil globally. We're going to see it increase from about uh, 100 million barrels to probably 120 million barrels in the next 30 years. So you have a government in Canada saying, oh, no, no, it's net zero electrification and blah, blah, blah. These folks are dreaming in technicolor, and worse, they're about to make this our cost of living that much more arduous. And if you don't take my word for it, go to a grocery store, you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, and that's one of the ancillary benefits or de- detriments, rather, to this whole thing. Uh, when fuel prices go up, uh, your your cabbage is going to cost more because somebody's got to drive it from the field to the to the store, uh, and they're going to they're not going to absorb the cost. I mean, that's going to go on, and that's I know I I know we talked about this a couple of days ago, but I just wanted to lay that out there again too, so people understand what's going on. Uh, and the other element to this, I'm. You know, this is a discussion we had just after uh, President Biden made the announcement about the pipeline. Uh, that's not stopping the flow. That 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 oil and that crude is still going to go to market. It's going to go by train. It's going to go by truck. It's going to go by other uh, pipelines, but it's still going to go. So uh, you, you can say on a philosophical level, hey, that's a victory for the environmentalists and the Leo DiCaprios and everything. But uh, the, the stuff still has to get to market because there's a market that needs it. Hey, look, in about 30 minutes or less, the United States is going to show for the seventh week in a row a historical drop in oil uh, inventories. The United States takes its oil and its energy very seriously. So I think Mr. Biden and company are very nervous about the rise in the price of fuel uh, because a lot of people are starting to clue into the fact that his woke policies, blocking pipelines, preventing uh, drilling on uh, federal lands, these kind of things uh, are likely to lead to even higher prices. Americans are stunned that they're paying three dollars on average on a gallon of gasoline. Imagine <laughs> works at only about eighty cents a liter, a Canadian. But you know, the fact is, Americans, unlike Canadians, aren't going to roll over and die. And uh, they have a number of congressional uh, seats coming up in the next sixteen, seventeen months. They also uh, know that uh, energy is so important. That here you have not only Mr. Biden, but can you believe it, Bill? The International Energy Agency at the end of May came out and said, oh, we've got to end fossil fuels, stop making any more. Three weeks later, on its knees, begging OPEC to produce more oil. And what had happened on the sidelines of what we saw last weekend, while well, most of us were 
perhaps uh, vacationing at our homes or whatever we were doing on the long weekend, which happened to be the Canada Day long weekend and the U.S. Uh, Memorial, not Memorial Day, yeah, Memorial Day weekend, Independence Day weekend, you saw Biden's advisors on the sidelines begging the the cartel, the OPEC, uh, to produce more oil. Why? Well, because if they don't, the Americans are going to find themselves without any fuel to drive their economy, and uh, it'll be very similar to what we saw with the Colonial Pipeline shut down a couple of weeks ago. I know some of our listeners who may be old enough to remember, and I certainly do. I was just a young driver, a young buck at the time, uh, yeah. the late 1970s, when OPEC basically had North America on its knees because yeah. we were totally reliant on them, and they said, we're shutting it off. Sorry, guys. Uh, you're just not going to get that. And gas stations were closed. They used to close at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. They were closed on the weekends. You could not buy fuel for your car because they had to ration it. Uh, now, you know, and, and we've and from that learned that, okay, we've got to start producing and, and doing what we're doing here in North America right now. Uh, the, the need is still there. It's, it's oh, yeah. amazing how people just seem to forget about that. And ever more so, because everyone thinks of oil as being, oh, that dirty car you drive, uh, you know, that uh, belches out uh, uh, whatever fumes. Uh, by the way, the emissions have dropped 17-fold in the past 25 years. Just in case there are people out there who don't think that, in, uh, you know, uh, internal combustion engines are clean, they're hell of a lot cleaner than EVs, certainly when it comes to the production and how, of course, you plug in your vehicle, what source you're getting here in Canada. It has been clean for, what, 50, 60 years with nuclear, the shutdown of, uh, of, of coal plants uh, well before it was trendy uh, and for which we got nailed for because we signed an agreement. But I won't get into that, the Paris Climate Agreement that gives us no credit for being cleaner longer uh, when well before it was, uh, it was uh, uh, in vogue. Uh, but what we have to look at here is the reality that uh, oil is being used, you know, in so many other ways. Everything from our, uh, you know, from our paints to our polymers, uh, everything uh, to our petrochemical sector. These are all high value added outcomes. Very clean, by the way. And the kind of things that we use to improve our quality of life. And that's why the human condition, not just in Canada, but around the world, has improved dramatically. We don't hear about famine. We don't hear about drought. We don't hear about our inability to manage, you know, on intemperate weather. Uh, and yes, I, I've been doing interviews with your colleagues uh, at CKNW out in, uh, in British Columbia yeah. about these uh, heat waves. The heat waves are not exceptional. And I just did a big, huge, <laughs> interesting review of the uh, heat uh, histories and patterns in BC and places like uh, uh, um, Lillooet and, of course, uh, Lytton, which burnt to the ground. Uh, those places saw much hot, hot, harsher and hotter temperatures in the 40s, the 50s, and even up into the 80s. So, again, I, you know, all of this really means it's a convenient way to get people to distract themselves so you and I wind up paying a lot more for, to prove absolutely nothing. Well, I, I just wrap this up because I want to get back to the pipeline, but I yeah. just anecdotally, I just got my second shot a couple of days ago. Uh, and uh, the hypodermic was made out of oil products, guys. Uh, you know, so let, don't, let's just put that in perspective. And there's so are a million other things that we use on a daily basis, which is why uh, the Alberta government uh, is, uh, I think, moving towards uh, jumping in on this right now. This is, this is a daunting task, isn't it, Dan, to try to take – you're basically taking the U.S. government to court. Yeah, it's going to take a while to do this, but I think they've got a very strong case, as does TC Energy, as do uh, the 16 other states, and actually there's a few more that are going to be coming in saying – uh, look, this was very legal. This was approved. This this company spent 10 years, did the due diligence, bent over backwards, did all the cartwheels that were required, and then some. Including uh, modifications, in, by the way. Modifications, brought in natives, uh, uh, Aboriginal ownership of part of the pipeline, uh, uh, you know, tens of thousands of jobs, permanent and uh, temporary, uh, for years to come. 
So the Americans have a lot to lose here, and that's because Americans have become more increasingly dependent on their friends north of the border for heavy oil. In, in refineries themselves are ticked off because they have now they've configured to accepting heavier slates of oil to make it easier to do things like uh, I don't know diesel <laughs> kind of thing you kind of need in the U.S. Mis- Midwest when you're producing corn when you're producing uh, farm products and mining and to drive your economy. So yeah, the Americans are ticked. And, uh, you know, you, you might get the trendies on the uh, on the one side with Biden that uh, made a stupid decision. But uh, as a good old friend of mine from the States uh, reminded me, a news person, I won't mention them, but they're with ABC, said uh, uh, the Biden administration doesn't have a problem cutting checks. Well, they're going to cut a big one here, and it may be a lot more than 15 billion bucks, but it may not happen over the next several years. In the meantime, Americans like Canadians can continue to expect the cost of living to go up because of the pipeline blockers and because we have woke politicians in this country who can't think further than their noses when it comes to the importance, the vitality of uh, oil and fossil fuels like natural gas. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm trying to get my head around the process here. And basically, I guess the gist of of this action is going to be, look at, you know, there was a commitment by the government to do this, uh, and we put a lot of money into it, we created a lot of jobs, uh, and the the decision here has been problematic and and put us in in a perilous situation. Now, I know that that they wanted to name the Obama administration, at least Alberta did, too, and I I got one legal opinion that says you can't do that because Alberta wasn't a partner then. It, It can only go from the time you signed on until forward. But even with that, Dan, I would think they've got a pretty strong case. I think it's a very strong case because it was a political decision. It wasn't based on any legal foundation. And while the government has, the president has the authority to to block, uh, he can't do so without consequences to the parties that have been aggrieved. Again, the parties did their due diligence. They had approval, not once, not twice, (laughs) but in fact throughout the entire process. And they had the approval of all the states. And they had the approval of of, uh, lower level uh, lower uh, courts, uh, especially in Nebraska. So I I think um, it's going to take a while, uh, but the American public is going to have to, uh, as it were, open their wallets, not just for higher energy prices, which Biden's uh, policies are are creating, but uh, now to pay and compensate for a company that had a legitimate right to build that pipeline and for which uh, uh, they have uh, invested substantial amounts of money, including the province of Alberta, and for which uh, a simple political decision stroke of the pen has uh, has destroyed this. So, again, this is a uh, this was a political decision, but there are commercial, uh, you know, interests that uh, I think precede any of the uh, political nonsense that has been obviously going on in the United States on the scale that we've seen in Canada for some time. It's too bad that uh, you know Americans uh, may not uh, appreciate what's happened here in Canada with the significant disinvestment in in Canada as a whole. In other words, we are seeing a flight of capital leaving this country more than capital coming in. And that's a very dangerous situation to find yourself in, uh, including our balance of trade, which is uh, is pretty lousy. So all of this really means for me, Bill, um, companies are going to do what they have to do, but they probably have a better chance of winning the United States than they do in Canada, where uh, Canadians have surrendered uh, to this uh, cult-like nonsense called climate change. Let me ask you about possibilities here. I mean, invariably, when there's a huge lawsuit like this and, and an action, uh, there's an attempt to try and try and compromise here. Settle out of court is the phrase a lot of people might understand. I don't know that there is any middle ground here. That you're going to build this or you're not. Yeah, and of course, there's now that who's going to come in? No one else is going to build this thing. Um, what do you do with the rights of way that you paid for? What do you do with the uh, initial building? Uh, in fact, you know, I would say, uh, at least on the Canadian side and to 
to a lesser extent on the U.S. side, you have at least two years of building going on, despite, you know, uh, objections by uh, lawfare warriors, uh, eco-warriors, uh, you know, trying to use the court strategically. And by the way, that's where a lot of them go. They, they know they can't win in the court of public opinion, especially when it comes to higher energy prices. So they, they try to do it uh, by legal means and find all sorts of trendy ways to do it. There's a raft of these kind of decisions that uh, keep going. And, they, and they're not just one. They're successive. And they try to find any way in which they can to get a judge to say no, at which point the companies have to go through a substantial amount of uh, time and money uh, and uncertainty. And of course, that uncertainty, time and money, comes directly out of your pocket and mine. So anybody who gets pissed off about, pardon my expression, about the oil companies gouging them at the pumps, you know, think about your politicians and your woke friends on the on the climate side who are ripping you off day in, day out, and you think nothing of it. I guess bottom line, Bill, and it's not to be disrespectful, smarten the hell up. Who adjudicates this thing? Because I'm looking at the record here. Uh, the United States has never lost uh, a Chapter 11 challenge. And uh, even though there have been some rather questionable decisions that have been made in, in this, and it kind of harkens back, I remember back during the, the negotiations for the new NAFTA and the Trump administration, where they, they said they wanted U.S. judges to, to, to settle any disputes. What, what's going on here? Who actually is going to have sway over this? That's a good question, because it's tripartite. You have the yeah. three countries having a, having an interest. You know, Mexico doesn't care what happens in Canada. They'd love to sell more oil into the United States, the caveat being there, if they could. Uh, but I, uh, you know, we, yes, Americans have not lost, lost uh, these kind of uh, challenges, but we've seen it in the past. And it's not the last, you know, uh, uh, last area for, uh, for, uh, for involvement. I mean, the, you can actually go and take this to international court if you have to. But I suspect that this is so big uh, and so cr- brazenly political uh, that this may be a game changer. And I think uh, the Americans... Uh, at least, at least as far as the Biden administration is concerned, should be concerned. And it'll go well beyond the Biden administration. I suspect this will, won't be resolved in the next seven or six or seven years anyways. We'll be watching as it rolls. Uh, and uh, six or seven years is a long time, but uh, we'll see what the result is. As always, Dan, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Cheers. Dan Take, who is the president of uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former MP and member here from Gas Buddies and a number of other initiatives uh, over the years. Uh, and the beginning of a conversation, if you didn't hear it, uh, the gasoline price is probably going to continue to go up, at least marginally, over the next couple of months. Uh, and I know people want to get out of the house and do an awful lot of traveling now that uh, the pandemic restrictions seem to be loosening a little bit, but uh, there's, there's going to be a cost to that. So just keep that in mind. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.